0: Father, I do just thank you again, God, for um, our salvation, God. We thank you most of all for our justification that you've given to us, God, and the gift of faith and repentance, and, Father, all the spiritual blessings, God, that you've given to us. I pray that we would um, worship you more for them and be more thankful, God, and more grateful, God, for the the grace that we've received. Um, Father, I pray for the study. God, I pray that um, through your word, Father, that we would know you better, that we would Understand your gospel better, God, and be more aware, God, of error, uh, Father. So we thank you for the book of Galatians. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and the, in the great defender of the faith, God, and of your glory that he was. And Father, I just pray for Angie, God, as she's um, back with us today, God, which, which seems miraculous, Father, for her condition that she was in, God. I pray that you would comfort her, God. I pray that she would even be, um, edified and built up, God, by, you know, even throughout the pain, God, of uh, that she has. That today she would be. Um, cared for and loved by your church. I pray you'd help us to love her today, God, and bless her. Find her the doctor that she needs. Uh, Father, so we just lift her up, God, and, and, and um, lay her at your, at your feet, God, and pray for your grace and mercy on her body. Let we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: Well, like I said, guys, uh, I want to begin today with a recap of what we covered last week. Um, and the reason I want to do that is one just for context of what we're going to study today, but um, the, the more I looked at the text from last week, the more this week I realized just how devastating Paul's arguments were for this whole system of works righteousness. I mean, the Apostle Paul just utterly destroyed um, any hopes of self-righteousness in the text that we looked at last week. And, I mean, I think I almost just really felt the, the weight of it when I reviewed it this week. And so I did just want to go back through really quickly, even for some who may not have been here, but we really need to, to get this because I think this is the heart of the book. This is Paul's main argument. The rest of it's just really going to be a, a building up of his main argument. Um, so let's look at it again just really quickly. If you want to turn to Galatians chapter 2. Last week, that we, just, we just read and we just looked at it again because we'd even covered it the week before, but verses 15 and 16 which is where the Apostle Paul just really clearly states his gospel. The Apostle Paul states what his gospel is and what it isn't. He says that man is not justified by works of the law, but he's justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Right? That is, that is what Paul is defending. That's what he's arguing for, and that's Paul's gospel. That's what separates. Hey, Scott, can you turn the AC on for me, please? It feels hot. That's what Paul's arguing for. That's what he's defending, is the gospel. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote this book, and really that's what—that's everything that we're going to look at uh, today is, is how Paul's defending this gospel of grace, that we're saved by faith alone. Following that, in verses 17 and following, the Apostle Paul um, described how he, had, he himself had died to the law. The Apostle Paul had, had quit looking to the law for his justification. The Apostle Paul had, had died to that, that function of the law and that he knew that he could not be saved through it. He knew that it would not give him righteousness. He says that he died the law. He says that he died with Christ. And he says that Christ lives in him now. And so I think that it's the indwelling of Christ through the Spirit is what enables Paul to say um, what he says. He says that um, the life which he now lives in the flesh, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. And he says... um, Where does he speak of how he lives to God? Um, Oh, that's in verse 19. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. And so the Apostle Paul is able to live to God God and honor him, respect his law, respect his his moral commands especially, through the indwelling of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul is able to honor God and his law um, because of the indwelling Christ in his life. And then chapter 3 is where the Apostle Paul there really um, gave a very sharp rebuke to the Galatian churches. And I kind of pointed out that normally he's been rebuking the false teachers. Here he actually, actually rebukes the church who has given in to the false teaching. And what the Apostle Paul arguing in, in, in chapter 3 is he's saying that the Galatians are foolish because of all the spiritual blessings that they'd already received by faith. They received justification. They received the Spirit of God. They even had miracles working amongst them in their churches, all of this by faith. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying, that it's very foolish of them to think that um, God had given them all these blessings by faith alone and was now expecting them to go on and earn some sort of righteousness or some sort of better standing with him. They had been justified and made the people of God by faith alone, and that was enough. And it was foolish, really, to think that uh, there would be any other benefits of of a of a works righteous system. Angie, it's good to see you. Angie, we prayed for you already. I can't I can't believe you're here, but it's good to see you. Amen. Amen. Um. So, following the example that that Paul gives to the church and what they've experienced as far as receiving the Spirit, uh, Paul moves into the great example of Abraham, and we talked about how how important understanding Abraham is to just having an historic understanding of God's redemptive purposes all the way through history from the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, is that Abraham is the father of all those who believe. And here the Apostle Paul brings up and quotes Genesis 15, 6. And the text said that Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, we see Abraham's justification. And Abraham received his justification and his righteousness by faith alone, by believing the promises of God, right? And so what Paul's saying is just if you want to be in the lineage and of a descendant of Abraham, if you want to become a Jew, you need to do what Abraham did and believe God and receive justification the same way he did. If you're wanting to be the people of God, this is how you do it. Do what Abraham did and believe the promises of God. And then lastly there in verse 10, we saw... Um, what comes along with the works of the law? If these, if these Gentile Christians who had already been justified were, were seeking some other justification in, in, a, in a better place than the people of God, and if they were seeking it through the law, the Apostle Paul told them what, what comes with the law. He said it comes with a curse. The law, with the law comes a curse. Because that we cannot keep the law. We cannot keep it perfectly as the law... Um, commands us to. If you see that quote from the Old Testament, it's probably in all caps in your Bible, in verse 10. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 27. And this is in the law itself. It says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. And so the law itself tells you that you must keep all of it. You must keep every bit of the law. And so. There you see, and the Apostle Paul was showing these Gentiles, that even in the law itself, it shows the impossibility of being made right before God by keeping the law. It's impossible. It's impossible for for us because we're fallen, because we're sinful. And then lastly, in verse 13, Paul shows, in speaking of the, the curse, he quotes the Old Testament that said, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so he doesn't just leave them in their hopeless state in in their understanding of not being perfect, but he points them to Jesus Christ, who became a curse for us. The death of Christ on the tree was actually fulfilling Old Testament prophecy here, that it's spoken of the reality that anybody who's hung up on a tree like that is, is showing that they're cursed by God, but we know that Jesus Christ wasn't cursed for his sins. We know that it was a substitutionary death. He was cursed for our sins, right? And so in that way, we receive the blessings of Abraham through faith, and the promised Spirit that is to come. Right? This, I know that was a whole. I mean, that was a whole lot of material, and that's a whole lot of subjects. You know, we had issues with the Spirit, justification, Abraham, um, Jesus' death, the the prophecies. I mean, is there any questions y'all wanted to to bring up, or any clarifications y'all needed that you could think of with all that material? Because I know it's a lot. I mean, the book of Galatians is so compact. I mean, I think that's probably why um, Paul later on wrote the book of Romans, right? He dedicated 16 chapters rather than just six, you know, because there's so much. There's so much here in this gospel. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to open it up even to, even to start off. Does anybody have any questions? Does everybody feel all right with that? Does everybody understand how Abraham was justified and how that, that he's the example for everyone to follow? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I know I know at the end of class last week um, Emilio brought up a, a very helpful clarification on one point um, Because we had talked about how the law is a curse We had talked about how the law cannot save it just shows you your sin uh, how that work that were imperfect what Emilio was trying to clarify for us is that it wasn't the law in itself that was that there was anything wrong with in that sense Right God was giving us a, a, his law his standard of holiness there was many, many other things that are helpful in the law. A lot of the uh, sacrificial system in the law, for instance, points to this coming sacrifice of Christ. So there was good things in the law in that sense, right? So it's not the law that's wrong. God, There's nothing wrong in the law that, in and of itself. What's the problem is us. We can't keep that law, right? So we got that, and that was helpful for Pastor Miller to bring up. Did you have something?
2: Yeah, I just think a lot of times nowadays a lot of people – Come down so hard on the law and talk about how much they hate the law and it's so terrible. Mm-hmm. When it was there for our benefit, it's good and righteous and holy. There's nothing yeah. wrong with it. Yeah. People that say they hate the law—it's interesting. I've heard sermons like, "What part do you hate because you really want to go kill someone that doesn't let you?" Right. I mean, there's nothing bad about it. Yeah. It just shows us that we're sinners and it doesn't have any power to save us. That's right. But I think yeah. a lot of times, especially in, in good doctrinal churches, they come down without thinking. I hate the law. It's no good. All this. What part of the
1: law is bad? Yeah. It's
2: good, it just doesn't
1: have power to save. That's right. It, it serves other functions, which is actually what we're going to look at today. And so that's why, that's why I thought even when Amelia brought that up, and just as Brother Ryan said, I mean, yes, there, there's, there's great things from the law. It cannot save, though. That, that's where it falls short, is that the law cannot save. And to the law's defense, it wasn't intended to. And that's what we need to look at. That's what the Jews misunderstood, is they used the law thinking that through this they could receive this justification and a better standing with God where, um, where that's not what the law was for. And so, yeah, I think that that's very helpful. Let's, let's dive into that in verse 15 here of chapter 3 in Galatians. And now we're really going to see um, today what the intent of the law was. If God did not even give us the law to save us, why did he give us this law? Um, So we're going to see that the relationship, right, between the covenant that we've already talked about, the Abrahamic covenant, that began all the way back in Genesis 12, um, with this newer covenant given to Moses, to people of Israel through Moses. And we're going to see how those two work together. What's the relation between those two covenants? That's what we're going to look at today. Um, And Paul begins here in verse 15. Paul says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant... Yet, when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Um, And so that that language is kind of tough there. I almost wanted to to quote how the NIV um, says it, but let me just put it almost in my words. I think what Paul's saying here is he's saying, let's look at a covenant even from a man's perspective. Let's look at a covenant even between uh, mere men. Once we make a covenant, once we make a deal, once we make a promise, we don't change it, right? You can't make a promise and then walk away and, and change it. Once a covenant is established, you can't change it or add to it, right? Even, even amongst men, that's how we do it. That's the point of making a covenant a promise is that it's not going to be changed. And so what Paul's saying is by implication. So in the same way, God's promise to Abraham is not going to be changed. It's not going to be um, put aside. It's not going to have anything added to it. The promise given to Abraham will stand. That's what Paul's saying, just as our promises and covenants should stand as well. In verse 16 he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And he does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. And I think we've already looked at this verse previously. Uh, but we're going to look at it again because this just falls in line with where we're at. Now. But this is a tricky statement by Paul. What does Paul mean that this promise wasn't spoken to Abraham's seed, plural? Right? Because do you all remember the promises that we looked at, the promise in uh, Genesis 12:3. What was the promise there? He says, all the nations, plural, will be blessed. Right? It sure sounded like in Genesis 12:3 that it was a plurality of seed. Mm-hmm. All the nations would be blessed. And then in uh, Genesis 15, 6, we saw the promise where God told Abraham, look up at the stars. As many as the stars are in the heavens, so will your descendants be. It sounds like a plurality, doesn't it? It sounds like plural seeds. So what's Paul talking about saying it's not to seeds plural, but it's referring to one? Well, I think all Paul's emphasizing here, all he's saying is that there's a spiritual fulfillment. There is a fulfillment to that promise. Um, Even in the language of a plurality of descendants that Abraham was going to have, there's a singular fulfillment of that. And he says what it is. He says that it's Christ. And so those promises to Abraham, and Abraham must have got it, because Abraham was justified by believing this, Um, there was a Christological prophecy, I think, as well as a fulfillment in Christ by those promises. And that's that's what um, Paul means to point out here is that it's through one seed in particular of all of Abraham's seed, all of Abraham's descendants, that the blessing would come. The blessing is going to come the plurality of seed through the one seed, Jesus Christ. And that's what I think Paul's trying to say there. Um, so now because there's this future seed coming, this future coming of Christ from Abraham, and that's, and that's really going to be the ultimate realization of these promises, Paul goes on in verse 17 to clarify what he's he's trying to say here. He says, what I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, it does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. And so Paul starts off by saying, what I'm saying is this. He's trying to clarify his point. And in case you didn't follow his clarification with the language of ratifying and nullifying promises, invalidating covenants, um, in case that, that really wasn't helpful for you, what he's saying in verse 17 is this. He's saying, just because this law was given later, hundreds of years later, doesn't mean that the previous promise is being changed, right? Just because God brought something else along, doesn't mean that his previous promise to Abraham uh, to justify the Gentiles by faith has changed. And then in verse, 15, uh, verse 18, he says that because if that was the case, if this law which came later um, could justify, that would mean then that God's previous promise that it would be by faith would be um, null and void. It would be broken. God's promise would be broken. Right? And we know just like the Galatian churches would have known that that God's promises will not be broken, right? God's promise to Abraham will not be broken. And so there must be something else to this. It's not breaking God's promise by bringing in this law. And so it's a big question, and a, I think it's a logical question, a reasonable question. Why was this law added then? If we had a promise in Genesis 12, at the very beginning of our Bibles, that, that, that a promise that would point to the Messiah, a promise that could justify if you trusted in it, if we have the gospel, just as Paul says um, in, in Genesis 12:3, why did God add this law? That's a reasonable question, right? And that's what Paul's going to address. Verse 19, he says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency, by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. And so we see Paul's answer to the question, why was the law added? The the answer is very simple. He said it was added because of transgressions. It was added because of sin. And so something with the issue of sin, dealing with sin, as we'll see, to reveal sin, this is the reason God brought in the law, the primary reason, I think, that God brought in the law. And uh, that's really what we're going to see, really, for the rest of the study today, is how this works out. So just keep that main thought in mind, that the law was brought in to, to deal with sin. But let's look at some other just important points here in what Paul just said, uh, because there are a couple more important things to look at. He says that the law was added I think that's important because the law was added. It was not a replacement, right? The Abrahamic covenant was not replaced by this law covenant, right? right? The promise was not done away with, uh, which is, again, going to sound repetitive, but that's what Paul's point is. Yes, sir?
3: Now, I'm trying to tie that in what you just said. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, uh, verse 15 Mm -hmm. uh, to give human examples brothers even with a man-made covenant no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified very good
1: so uh, how do
3: we reconcile that okay
1: so yeah so my next sentence i have is that it's not added to the abrahamic covenant itself right these aren't additional laws that are added to the abrahamic covenant what it's added is added alongside of the abrahamic covenant so the abrahamic covenant stands The promise stands. You see, you have this covenant that will never end, that, you know, the promise of justification by faith. It keeps going. But we have something added over here, not to the covenant. It's added alongside of. So it's
3: something separate. It's something
1: separate. It's something separate. So what we actually have is two covenants going at the same time, right? Got it, yeah. Which is, yeah, it's very interesting. But that's that's a very, and I I put myself a note there, too. right?
3: Now, now, um, when we're talking about, um,
4: Well, hey, um, real quick. I just wanted to point out very quickly, um, the word added there,
2: Mm
4: -hmm. um, I looked that up, it literally means to come in from the side.
2: Mm -hmm.
4: So it's kind of like you're saying, Chris, it was was additional, but it was on its own merit, you know, it was its own covenant. It was added on the side, It's kind of
3: as a, you know... supplement It's going to supplement, sure. It. Yeah,
0: not to replace now, it. Yeah.
3: No, When it comes into when he asks why then the law, and it brings me back to what we were uh, talking about last week in the sermon mm-hmm. about looking at it from a, a complete look at Christ. Wouldn't that that show? Christ before he actually came in flesh in the word. That I mean, It's a picture of him because he was able to keep that. That is his identification mm-hmm. as well.
1: Yeah, so maybe like God's holy standard is a picture of his nature, where we can see who God is, yep. thereby seeing Christ. Yeah, Yeah. I mean that, that may be an aspect of it, um, but I think that the law is going to function in a different way to end up at Christ, but maybe a little maybe a, uh, with a different thrush sure. behind it. But yeah, we see God's Holiness through the law, right? Definitely, thereby seeing Christ holiness at the same time. But uh, that was a very good question, like with the language of adding, because I used it almost contradictory. Sure. But yeah, it's, it's being added um, alongside of this covenant that's still going. Um, maybe a couple more differences to see, just even what's mentioned here in this text, is that see, see the language here in verses 19 and 20 of the mediator how Paul brings up that the fact that there's a mediator, who we know is Moses, right? Moses received the law. Moses mediated between the people um, these laws. He judged them in that sense um, with the law. And then at verse 20, which is a very difficult, um, actually, the commentators really, I don't know, do you remember from everything that I read, they really don't have a, a, they couldn't really give me a clear understanding of. It says now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Um, Carson pretty much threw up his hands. It sounded like to me. Do you remember what really he means by saying? I mean, I know what they they, they say. The thrust of what Paul is saying is this: that there's a difference with the fact that there's a mediator um, as part of the law covenant, right? The Abrahamic covenant was. If we we I don't think we read it, but if you see in Genesis 17 this this God giving this covenant to Abraham, God, God installs this covenant by himself. God makes a promise himself directly to Abraham. He puts Abraham to sleep um, and walks through the, symbolically through these um, sacrificial um, animals by himself, all by himself, right? And so that's the, another distinction is that it was, it was a covenant straight from God himself, straight to Abraham the recipient, um, whereas this other covenant that comes hundreds of years later has a mediator, it has a human mediator, which isn't as good as God himself. Emilio, Jeff, yeah. Yeah,
4: I think what he's saying there is that um, he's trying to re- re-emphasize. He's arguing this point. Mm-hmm. And the point that he's arguing is that the, the Abrahamic covenant does not have stipulations. Like the, like the covenant. Mm-hmm. You
0: know
4: what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's not conditional. It's un- it doesn't come with blessings and curses. Okay, it comes with blessings but not curses like Leviticus twenty six Do twenty eight what stipulate that. Good. Yeah. I think he's just showing the unconditional nature of the covenant. It was ratified by God.
1: Maybe flesh that out a little bit. What do you mean unconditional covenant? You know what I mean? Like I was, I was you thinking, said it but just maybe yeah, explain. Like unconditional meaning that God was going to
4: fulfill the covenant that made to Abraham. Right. Whether or not Abraham was worthy or whether or not he married him, you know, um, uh, standing before the or, you know, contributed to the covenant, which he did not, mm-hmm. uh, just like you pointed out. God put him to sleep to symbolize that this was a unilateral covenant with God himself establishing the covenant. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what he's arguing for. Which good. Is so good, good. Because it shows us that he, he will keep it because he's faithful. Yeah. It's not dependent upon man. And I think that's his argument, yep. too, is showing like the law modus doesn't add
2: stipulations to the promise.
0: Mm-hmm. Good, I you got something,
2: yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say is I think it looks like he's talking about with the,
0: the law, it's it's one party creating a law dependent upon the other law, fulfilling in that sort of sense, but the promise is there's one party making a promise, period, there's no second
2: party, Yep.
0: Yeah. no
2: merit, they don't have to do anything, It's so it's just one-sided with
0: that part of it. Yeah, it's one-sided and that one side is God, right, which is and the difference, not a if human...
4: people don't keep the law. Mm-hmm. That doesn't disqualify them from partaking in the promise.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The promise is still valid. God's still going to
0: be faithful in keeping that.
1: Yeah. good.
2: There's no intermediary with the promise. Mm-hmm. You know, with the promise, when the promise is made, he's, not an but he's just making a promise saying, I make this promise, I keep it, there's no intermediary involved where... Okay. With the law, there is the intermediate. Good.
0: Right. Is it also worth That's good.
2: pointing out that in 19 angels, doesn't that
0: just mean
1: messengers? Um. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it can. Um, what's interesting about that uh, is I even put just in case somebody asks, most people reference Deuteronomy 33:2. If you want to look at that real quick, just because it is kind of interesting. Um, Deuteronomy 33:2 says this. Speaking of the angels, right, maybe just even reading verse 33-1-2, it says, Now this is the blessing which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. Right? At his right hand there was a flashing light. So somehow it's speaking of these 10,000 holy ones that were there at the giving of the law. right? Um, but yeah sometimes the word angel is used as a messenger, a human messenger, yes. but for somehow the angels seem to be involved here. You know, it doesn't explain how or what that is dealing with, um, but the reference I had there was Deuteronomy 33, 2, of what he's probably referring to, but I don't know what in the world the angels were doing there, you know, as far as, because um, it says it's through the angels, right? I don't know what, what type of mediation they were providing or if they even were. Um, but yeah, it is interesting.
0: But that's why I think yeah.
1: if it is
2: messengers, and it is just put in place through God's people, through the law of prophets, who mm-hmm. are speaking out God's word that was supposed to be um, yeah.
1: kept. Yeah, it could be following human prophets that are mediating, yeah. Yeah, they're giving yeah. them all of their time. The yeah. Moses
2: and the rest of them that are, you know, writing the rest of the books.
1: Yeah, yeah, it could be. I mean, the, the only other reference I had, maybe look, Acts 7.53, I wrote down two. It, but it, there again, they're saying they're, they're thinking it's angelic you know, somehow. But that's a good question. That was a, that was a very interesting thing uh, to see there. Okay, so, so let's look at, really quickly, one more distinction here. Look at the end of verse 19, since we're there. Um, this, is, this is a necessary thing to look at because it shows us that the law, this law that came 430 years later, it was added for a temporary amount of time. And it says it was added until the seed would come. We know that the seed is Christ. Right? So at the coming of the seed, at the coming of Christ, the law, in, in, in this sense, is not needed anymore. And that's why these Gentile Christians are not needing to become Jews, they're not needing to become circumcised, you know, all of these other regulations that came along with the law. Um, the law functioned until the seed would come. Right? This, and that, that just has to do with what God's purpose was behind the law. The law served a very specific purpose. And once that purpose was done and, and, and the the really the object of our faith had, had fully been realized in the in the incarnation of Christ, um, yeah, the law is not needed anymore at that point. Right? The law will have been fulfilled by that point by Jesus by Jesus Christ. Every jot and tittle of it. Um okay, so so if the law if the law has all of these distinctions, all of these differences, I would say even even it's even inferior to the Abrahamic promise in in some ways, a new question arises in uh, verse 21 here. And he says this, he says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is the law contrary to the promises of God? And Paul answers, may it never be. It's not contrary. He says, For if the law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would adi- indeed have been based on the law. And so what Paul's saying is the only way that this, this new covenant, um, this, what is now the old covenant we call it, but the Mosaic Law Covenant, with the coming of this covenant, the only way it would be contradictory or conflicting with the Abrahamic Covenant is if this new covenant was able to impart life, if it was, if it was able to justify, if it, was able to, if it was able to do the same thing that the Abrahamic Covenant um, did, which it can't. Right? So it's not conflicting in that sense. It's not stepping on the toes of the Abrahamic covenant, this, this law covenant. Right? It doesn't because it can't function in the same way. So let's see, verse twenty two, really in fact, what is the function of this Old Testament law? Because he's explaining why the law. Why did God bring in this law? Verse twenty two he says, But the scripture, um, which is interesting what he calls it here, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. It shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And so with with all the inability of the law to justify, even with all of its shortcomings in that sense, it does not contradict the Abrahamic covenant, right? God's not contradicting himself. Um, God's not breaking his previous promise in any sense. The law has a different function. And Paul, calling it the Scripture, right, talking about all of the Old Testament, He's, he's, he's going to show us here what, he, what the law is for. The primary focus of the law is to shut up. Everyone sin. Yes, sir, Justin. Can you read your version of 24 again?
3: Because mine says, so then the law was our guardian until mm-hmm. so Christ came. And I understood it a little differently how you read
1: it. Guardian. I mean, I think I might even like that word. After studying just that word, I think I may like guardian even better maybe. But yep. so we'll talk about that word. Um, we will. I even have a, a, whole ch- a whole paragraph here on the word. But we'll look at it, right? But so you, you know that verse well, right? Do you know it? That 24? No. Okay, yeah. Well, we'll talk about it. Um, I will get there. But what Paul's saying is when Paul's saying that he's going to shut everyone up under sin, the scripture is going to shut everyone up under sin, what he's stating is in just in a very succ- a succinct sentence, everything that Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3 talk about, right? In Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see how the Jew is condemned by the law. Right? We, we saw how cursed is everyone who does not keep all the things written in the book of the law. The Jew who receives the written law from God is cursed and cannot keep that law and therefore is a sinner. They're shut up under sin. They're condemned by the law. And then we know from Romans 2 as well um, that the works of the law are written on the, the, the heart of man. Right? And that way, even the, the one who doesn't have the written law has the works of the law written on their heart. Their consciences bear witness whether they're breaking God's law or not, right? And so, in that sense, they're condemned as well. They will be condemned on judgment day based on what they knew was right and what was wrong. And so, everyone is shut up under sin by the reality of God's law. Everyone, and that's the, that's that's the point. That's that's the goal. And God, when I mean, God's been saying that, ever, even immediately following the before the flood, immediately following the flood of Noah. God described just the, the utter sinfulness of man's heart. All men. We all, we all come from Noah again, physically even. And so sin is passed down in that way. We all break God's law. We're all sinners. The Jews break the written law. Uh, we, the Gentiles would break the, the law of their conscience. And so we're all guilty. We're all guilty. And this leads us to, to, to the verse that Robert was asking about. That's why there's this Therefore. In verse 24, um, because all have sinned, because all have broken God's law, whether written or, or the, the, the works of the law written on their hearts, um, therefore, we see the function of the law, therefore the law has become a tutor or a guardian to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And I did want to touch on the, the word here, uh, is gogos is the Greek term, which NASBS, tutor, E-S-B, right, as yeah. guardian. Yeah. Um, I think King James has schoolmaster. School that, right. That's where. That's what you heard.
3: That's that's the the one I understood it to be because when I hear schoolmaster, I hear um, uh, a almost a a leader, not a teacher, more of mm-hmm. follow my lead as um, this is what you need to do.
1: Right. Right. Um,
3: or a guardian, a protector is what I hear when I hear guardian, not necessarily um, a teacher or a leader.
1: Right. Well, let me, let me just describe um, what a pedagogos was in the first century. Okay. This was a slave, right? The, the, the wealthy would have slaves, and one a, a, a faithful slave would be dedicated to watch over the children.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: would lead the children wherever they go, to and forth to school, right? It would lead them in the right. It would not let them get off, not go to their friend's house. It's directing where they need to go, right, back and forth. It's protecting them, right, if, if it's a grown, a grown adult slave, who will protect the children, right? And, and so there's, I think there's a lot more to it than a very simple definition. God, so the three Maybe all
3: three, of those maybe all
1: three put that, together, exactly. Yeah, yeah but, but it's so helpful to me to have that illustration, right, A pay to go get this slave that's watching over the children, is directing them the way they should go, is making sure they're not getting off, right? And, and we know um, from here, where it is, this slave, the law. It's very interesting that it's, they're it's talking about a slave here. It's the law, of the slave. Um, but the illustration is interesting. But where is that slave leading? Is leading the children to? It's leading them to Christ. It's leading them to Christ. Um, you know, we use basically this function of the law all the time. You know, like in our evangelism. You know, we use this function of the law to show people their sin. And that's how the law would do that. It would show the people that they're cursed, that they cannot keep all the things written in the book of the law. Right? That's how we do it. When we preach the gospel, we show people that they've broken God's laws, that they are not good enough. Right? We try to drive them. Right? We're out there like these pay to go these slaves. You know? we're, trying to, we're trying to direct people to Christ, showing them they need him. Right? That's, and that's, that's really what, what we do with the law as well. Um, and that, that was the function and that, that's a good word, right? It's helpful for me to think about the law in that way. Yes, sir? What
3: Emilio brought it up
4: last week. Is the law is just holy and good. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of those ways in which it's good. Yeah. That people, the weak, in the weakness of their flesh, all they see is the law is bad to them. Mm-hmm. But really, if it's a tutor to lead us to the apex of what all of life is about, mm-hmm. then why not?
1: Yeah. Yeah, the law, there is a grace in the law, right? It is a curse, and it's a blessing and a curse, they say, you know. The, the law should help you come to grace. It should, it should lead you to, to the promise. The law is good in that way. And
3: isn't that why yeah. uh, David had said, you know, delight your ways in, in the law of the Lord?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, even there, right, it's, it's interesting because it's the law of the Lord, I think he's referring to those scriptures in, in total, like in, in, August, yeah. in, in all, just like Paul referred to it there in um, verse 22. He says the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, right? The whole, yeah. the whole Old Testament. Um, everything that God revealed about himself, his holiness, yeah, should lead us um, to faith in Christ, right? And so that's, that's the purpose of the law. Um, let's look at verse 25 now. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We're no, we're no, we're no longer under this slave who's supposed to lead us um, to Christ because faith has come. The object of our faith has fully come. Christ has come, and we've put our faith in him. He says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And so faith has come. We're, not, we're no longer these wandering children, right, that need to be knocked back into, into line. We're not wandering away. We've come to Christ, right? That's, we're fully mature, which is what these Gentile uh, Galatian churches need to realize they were mature sons by faith in Christ. They were fully the people of God, right? They didn't need something else to, to direct them to God. They were there. They were fully a part of the people of God by faith in Christ, right? They they were they, they couldn't have been made, and in Paul's language here we'll see, they couldn't have been made any more the people of God by faith. He says... Uh, and speaking of baptism, we've, you, you fully Id- identify yourself with the people of God through your baptism, right? You fully identify yourself with the people of God, um, and, and it's showing us the picture of, of what happens in, in regeneration, the inward work of regeneration. It's a picture of your conversion. You're dying with Christ, right? Rising to a new life in Christ. It's, it's picturing your union with Christ. That's what all, all those things What baptism is showing have happened. And in verse 27, he uses this language. He says, he describes it as as having been clothed with Christ. Having been clothed with Christ.